This is eschatology, and let me just explain ahead of time. We'll do some introductions a little later, but let me just introduce what we're going to do here. The course was advertised as eschatology and ecclesiology as a combined course, and I had a conversation with Charlie Clough. Some of you may know him. You probably remember him from the uh, creation seminar. He's He's the, what is it, president of the board of directors, his title. We talked Sunday night late, and we discussed kind of this course, and we both felt, in fact, I told him that I just didn't feel that to kind of split the time with ecclesiology was good for eschatology, because there's not even enough room in a regular course to cover everything that could be covered in eschatology. And we both agreed on that, and I said, it's probably too late to change anything, so we'll just go ahead. And he says, no, go ahead, change right away. So I've been jumping through hoops to revise all my slides that have both ecclesiology and eschatology. So that's what we will do. And I think I told some of you in that email, those of you that are on the list, so that uh, you know ahead of time. So that's kind of the, the background on that. So this will be solely eschatology, and you will see we will be jumping through hoops to try to get through everything that we could cover in uh, in the course. And just real briefly for the credit students, I'll let you go over the syllabus on your own, in your own time. I won't take too much class time to do that. I think you can read it. The only thing I want to just highlight are a couple of things. The course text, for example, Dwight Pentecost. That's a book that should not be difficult to find. It's relatively popular, and most of the bookstores used to carry it. I don't. I haven't checked recently, but I would assume they still do. And obviously, you can order it probably quickly on Amazon and other places like that. I got a, a copy of that probably for since before 19, maybe 1970. Okay. So, has that been changed? Not that I know of. Yeah. May have been revised or reprinted and all that. But. Okay. So still be good. Yeah. Progressive dispensationalism, I see Bob. We'll touch on a little <laughs> of that. Yeah. The other thing to call your attention to are just the course requirements. I've got four parts, actually three, and the class attendance part, and I think those are self-explanatory. If you have any questions on it, feel free to just call me. In fact, what I have to do, give you my contact information, and we'll talk a little bit about the course schedule, which is on the second sheet there. On the first sheet, the research exam says questions from the it's not on here, okay. but I'll hand those out as we progress. Okay. And by the way, what we are doing is we are not only recording, but if there's remote students, they will be joining us at the same time, and this will go up on the Internet, and they'll be able to tune into the class. I don't think we have any registered, but in the future, that's the hope and the plan, is to have lots of students, even remote, and we'll do things here in class. So along those lines, I've got a microphone over there, so when you ask questions or make comments, you might elevate your voice a little bit, and it'll come out a little clearer, and people will be able to hear what you're saying. So be careful what you say, right? (laughs) Don't criticize me. (laughs) 
Okay, on the course schedule, I divided it into six major parts here, apart from just this introduction that I'm giving right now. We will have a long introduction that will include today, and it may even go into the fourth session. So a long introduction. There's a lot of things to talk about on eschatology in general, and we'll get into some of that. I'm going to spend some time trying to demonstrate today the importance of it. A lot of people and a lot of churches, a lot of theologians, a lot of pastors view eschatology as somewhat of a side issue or more of a sensational approach to Bible study. And I think the very opposite is the reality, and I'm going to try and demonstrate that, why it's so important, and particularly up front. In fact, when I was talking to Charlie, one of the things he emphasized was this aspect that we'll bring out. And if you went to the Hoffmantown seminar that they had and Charlie's talk, his introduction to his talk, is going to cover some of the same stuff. And we agree on that. In fact, I incorporated some of his quotes as well. So... So we'll talk a lot about the importance. We'll talk about the intent of Bible prophecy, which it's not to satisfy our curiosity. We'll see that. But biblically, there's several statements in Scripture that lay out very clearly what the intent, why God was pleased to reveal the future and why he chose to give us this whole area of study. We need to spend some time on the whole area of interpreting because there are so many different approaches, so many different ways that people handle prophetic material. And the way that we handle it is by far the minority view, the minority of minorities, you might even say. And it's not as well known even. In fact, when it's referred to by others, it's referred to almost like we're cultish. But I believe the reason we hold to it is because we believe it's the most biblical view. So we'll talk a lot about interpreting Bible prophecy. I'll give you the different views, the different positions that are out there so you can be aware of it. Most of the books, most of the uh, teaching that you will probably encounter outside of our circle, of more conservative, Bible-believing literalists, will be all of these other approaches. So we'll go over them. And I want to spend a good time on foundations of eschatology, and that'll expand the little bit of introduction that I referred to in terms of why it is so important. I think eschatology is a thread that runs throughout Scripture. It's not just future from our generation, but if you don't understand what God has already accomplished, which was prophesied before it happened, then uh, you're going to have a difficult time. And I think this is one of the reasons why we have so many views is that whole area is neglected. So we'll spend some time in what I call foundations to eschatology. And those of you that took the foundations course that I taught, this will be a review of some of the, the highlights at least. Obviously, we did a whole course on foundations to all things. So I'm going to give you a foundation to just eschatology. And you'll see that it's a a common theme throughout Scripture. So that's the introduction. That'll take us about four sessions. And 
I believe, and I will emphasize the point, that's why I start off with the second part, the nation of Israel in prophecy. I believe that eschatology, and I'll reinforce this over and over, eschatology is Jewish. If you don't have a Jewish concept and an understanding of eschatology, you're going to end up in some of these other camps as well. But I think the essence of eschatology is Jewish. Eschatology that pertains to the next category, the church, fits in the context of Jewish eschatology. So if you don't understand how the church fits into Jewish eschatology, you're going to get the eschatology of the church all messed up as well. So it's part of Jewish eschatology. It's the Jewish time frame that we have. The Jewish time frame is very clear in Scripture. Jewish chronology is very clear. And if you get those things together, then everything else falls into place. There's no chronology for eschatology relating to the church because it fits into Jewish eschatology. We'll talk about that. So we'll talk about the importance, and we'll spend at least two sessions on eschatology relating to the nation of Israel. We'll spend one session on eschatology relating to the church. The heart of that is the rapture. That's the heart of church eschatology. There's some other things as well, but that's the main thing that we'll concentrate on. And another area, number four, is the tribulation. There are literally hundreds of passages in Scripture that predict this horrific period of time in history. It's predicted all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy before the nation of Israel is even a nation. God revealed to Moses that the children of Israel would go through a very, very terrible time. And it's not clearly spelled out as the tribulation, but it's unmistakably a reference to that period of time. And then throughout the rest of Scripture, there's lots of detail. In fact, the bulk of the book of Revelation deals with that period of time, from chapters 4 all the way to chapter 19. There's only 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. That portion of the book of Revelation deals, I believe, if you have a proper understanding of eschatology, with this period of time called tribulation. The main eschatological passage that Jesus teaches, the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 25, Luke 21, Mark 13, that Olivet Discourse primarily deals with this period of time. So it's very, very important. So we'll spend some time looking at that. And then, in the fifth place, we'll look at the consummation, where God is going to wrap up world history, the consummation of all things, particularly second coming, and then when Christ returns, there's going to be a period of time called a millennium by the book of Revelation. It's millennial. In the Old Testament, it was referred to the kingdom, the future kingdom. And there's lots to talk about concerning that. We'll spend at least a whole session, probably more. And then after that, and there's confusion in the church today concerning heaven, if you will, or the eternal state. The eternal state is different from the millennial kingdom. It's very common to hear in the church referring to heaven as the kingdom. God rules, certainly in heaven, but it's different from a specific historical period of time called the Millennial Kingdom. 
So we'll make that distinction and we'll talk about them separately. So the eternal state, and then we'll deal with some particular other issues. If we have time, I'm going to have some flexibility in there and maybe even omit some of those. And then I want to look at the major passages of Scripture that are eschatological by design, that are prophetic, and there's a few Old Testament ones that we'll focus on. Obviously, there's many. We won't be able to look at all of them. And I want to concentrate on the Olivet Discourse specifically. So with all of that background, the Olivet Discourse will be real easy to understand. The book of Revelation will be real easy to understand. So I want to just kind of put it within that framework. And we'll spend a couple of sessions looking at the major eschatological scriptures. Old Testament, Olivet Discourse, and book of Revelation. Any questions on that? Did I leave anything out? <laughs> Left out ecclesiology, right? On the schedule, is there going to be a Chaper Conference in the Moldis this spring? Yes, good question. Just logistically, there's one week off for the Chaper Conference, particularly. So the middle of March is when that's scheduled. So we'll go continuous to the middle of March, take a week off, and then pick up from there. And by the way, the reason we're starting early in this course, the rest of the Chafer courses won't start till the end of the month, is I got a trip planned to Israel. I'm taking a group to Israel and leaves the 23rd of April. So we got to get everything in between and allow for that week that we take off. When you say the middle Yes, yes. In fact, usually the, there's a few of us that drive down there. So if anyone is really interested in going, that would be, it's kind of a neat thing. It, Where is it? Houston. Okay, that's about all I wanted to say about the, the syllabus. Like I said, if you have more questions on it. And in fact, don't hesitate to ask questions, particularly on the requirements if you're going through that. I would hate for you to turn in stuff and then be totally off track. What I've done in the past, if a student does that, I usually just send it back and give them more instructions and have them resubmit it. But we can avoid that if in fact, you don't want to waste all that time and then start over. Don't hesitate to call or email me, and, and we can be more specific if it's not clear enough. Okay? Any questions on the course? If we, are, if we happen to miss one, yeah, Yes. I don't know exactly how, but all of this is recording, and you'll have access to those recordings. Secondly, I don't have my website up there, but... I'm also recording, and I will put the at least the audio and the uh, PowerPoint slides on my website, and I'll do that as soon as possible, usually within a few days. So if you do miss a class, you can make it up that way. Any other? Nothing else? Okay. Jim, why don't you open us in a word of prayer? Well, our Father and our God, we uh, thank you for a day of life. Life is a gift, and we're so grateful to have the opportunity to spend this time in this class to learn about your plan for history. And so we pray as uh, as we learn that it will help us to grow, uh, increase our hope. Uh, it will encourage us and enable us to be better witnesses in the world around us, winning others uh, to your kingdom. And uh, so we thank you. We pray that the Holy Spirit will guide and direct uh, Ray, as he teaches us, and prepare our hearts to receive what you have for Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jim.
Well, this is a course on eschatology, and the subtitle is The Consummation of All Things, where God has revealed himself in time, and he's revealed his plan, and it goes all the way back to the beginnings of all things. God has announced and and communicated to people basically a plan that he has for all of world history And part of that plan is yet to be fulfilled, is yet to to be uh, observed, and is even yet future 2,000 years after the time of Christ. And I view eschatology in that broader sense that deals with all prophetic scriptures. And I'll give you some statistics later on. But at least 25% of all of scripture was prophetic when it was written. At least 25. I'll give you the precise number that people have calculated. So at least a fourth of every, of all the passages were prophetic when they were written. And I'm going to ask you a question so you might start thinking about it in a moment. Think about what is the very first prophetic passage in all of Scripture. So, This is a very important area, and I said we're going to stress that, and we will only deal with an introduction today. In fact, I'm going to give you, I'm giving you an introduction to the introduction, (laughs) which I always do. Let's take a look, first of all, at the term for eschatology. It comes from two Greek words. There's a Greek word in the New Testament, eschatos. And if you've had any Greek, you know that it refers to last or last things or things that are last, eschatos, and then you add add ology to it, which is from the Greek word lagos. It's the same word that John uses in the beginning was the lagos, in other words, the word. So lagos has the idea of word or words in the plural. And you put the two together and you come up with the English word eschatology. And literally, eschatology refers to last words. But we use the ology idea to to convey the, the sense of the study of whatever is in view. So if you're studying soteriology, you're dealing with things, you're studying things relating to soteria. And what is that word in the Greek language? Salvation. Or sozo is the Greek, a Greek form of the word. You're dealing with the study of the doctrine of salvation. So we're dealing with the doctrine of what is called last things, but uh, we're going to look at it from a, a broader perspective. So last words, kind of literally, or the study of last things. It's a study of last things. And more broadly... I like to call it the study of prophetic scriptures, which includes scriptures that are already fulfilled. And that is necessary. In fact, that is very important because it's going to set a pattern for how do we deal with prophetic scriptures that are yet future from our time. And that is the most important principle that is neglected in every system of interpretation of eschatology except the approach that we're going to take. So it's the study of prophetic scriptures, and here's your question. What is the first prophecy of all of scripture? 
And in the answer, we'll see that prophetic scriptures begins way back early. It's not Daniel. It's not Isaiah. It's what? Genesis. 3.15? You're close, but you don't get the prize. Yes, I always said Genesis 3.15. Well, you don't get the prize either. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone want to venture another guess or suppose? No. But you're going to crush that. Uh, yeah, that's Genesis 315. We'll, we'll talk about that. Oh, the fall. No. It happened to... Yes. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. That, in fact, those are the first recorded words of God in the scriptures. And from the very beginning, with the very first words, God makes a prophetic statement. Verse 17, in he says you may eat from all of the trees that are in the verse 16 all of the trees of the garden except the tree that is in the midst if i'm quoting it accurately and then in verse 17 in the day future in the day that you eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden something's going to happen that's the per- first prophetic statement in scripture And then we have, obviously, 3.15, where God is going to deal with after they ate of the fruit that was in the midst of the garden. And that is a very important prophetic statement as well. In fact, I look at that statement as a summary of the rest of all of world history. God summarizes the rest of world history in Genesis 3.15. We'll look at that later on. So, uh, that already tells you that this is a very, very significant area because God begins to reveal his mind and reveal his character very, very early. And in fact, another just opening comment concerning how crucial this whole area is, there's no other area of study, all of the other ologies, that emphasizes more the glory of God than the whole study of eschatology. So it is very, very important. And we'll talk some more about that. So the glory of God. In fact, that's the purpose of all things, is that God is going to be glorified. And that's the end of all things. God will ultimately get all of the glory that he so definitely deserves. And it's eschatology, more than any other area, that expands and gives us a lot of details concerning the glory of God and God's purpose for all things. Because we're in the middle of it. We're, well, not the middle, but we're in in process. And the things that God has revealed concerning this bigger plan, not all of it has been fulfilled yet. So that's the term and areas related to it. The most significant events of all of history, and everything points forward to the first coming of Israel's Messiah. In fact, if you want a summary of all of the Old Testament, I will summarize all of the Old Testament as anticipation of Messiah. That summarizes all of the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament is anticipating Messiah. And then I would go the next step Everything in the New Testament tells us about the ministry of Messiah. Therefore, all of Scripture pertains to what? Messiah, particularly. God in general, Messiah specifically. 
and the most significant event then is things relating to the first coming. Now, obviously, that was fulfilled, so we learn a lot about eschatology in the fulfillment with the coming of Jesus Christ in the Incarnation. And what the New Testament clarifies is that there's going to be a second coming. Now, Israel's Messiah is the world's Savior in partial fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Then the second coming, Messiah will be the world's judge. So two major significant events in eschatology, and pretty much everything else relates to either the first or the second coming, or sometimes both. And the second coming is when history will come to a consummation, not immediately, but there's still a period of time where Messiah will reign on earth. And after that thousand-year reign, then we go into an eternal state. So that's very, very significant, and those are the two kind of overriding significant events of eschatology, and everything else will be related to those two. Just an overview, I've already gone over this, but real quickly, we're going to spend introduction today and the next three sessions, we'll deal with Israel, most important, we'll deal with the church, part of God's plan includes Gentiles, we'll deal with that when we talk about the church, because Gentiles in this age are part of that, but we'll trace, there's a whole plan of God for Gentiles, In fact, let me ask you the question, when does God begin to work with Gentiles? And that does not end it. In other words, he has a plan for Gentiles. In other words, nations. I guess you could say that. (laughs) Yep. After Adam, then. (laughs) You've caught on. You're pretty safe when you start with Adam and everything. Every answer. What is the first Adam? (laughs) Eve, yeah, (laughs) Adam and Eve. More specifically, where does God begin to deal with the nations? Flood. Not quite. He's still dealing with Babel. Mm -hmm. Babel, because that's the origin of the nations is Babel. And from Babel on, God is going to deal with the nations, and essentially, immediately, he rejects the world system, and he rejects the nations and creates his own nation, and then the rest of the world history deals with that nation. We'll talk about those things. So you have to have kind of this broader biblical perspective to see how all these things kind of unfold. And we're going to see the nations are particularly involved, not only from Old Testament prophecy, but particularly New Testament prophecy. The nations are involved in the kingdom, the part of the kingdom. And that's not the end of the nations. Revelation 21 and 22, which I believe deal with the eternal state, speak of the nations in the eternal state, specifically the nations. Hmm. 22.5, I believe. Look it up. So God has a plan for the nations, which tells us a lot of things. We'll look at some of the details on that. So Gentiles spend considerable time on the tribulation. I've already told you that that is a very specific and a very definite period of time that is spelled out in a lot of detail. In fact, the Old Testament gives us the specific chronology, the specific time frame of that period of time. And it's key to putting together all the other things. 
Part of the tribulation will be a devotion. We won't spend a lot of time, but we'll spend some time on a counterfeit Messiah. And you might even, we'll try to show that throughout history there have been counterfeit messiahs because there's always a counterfeit plan. There is a satanic satanic plan that has been in effect throughout world history and these antichrists pop up. In fact, 1 John chapter 2 says there have been many antichrists. There's many antichrists, even in the first century. And historically there have been many antichrists and there, have been, there will always be antichrists. But there's a specific one that is the ultimate, and we'll talk about that, that whole concept. We'll spend time on the second coming, specifically. That's the pivotal, most important future event. And then when the Messiah arrives, he will establish a kingdom, which there's a lot of confusion in the church. The predominant view is that we're living in the kingdom now. The church is the kingdom, so we'll talk about that and try to refute that. If we're in the kingdom now, we're pretty much in the ghetto part of the kingdom, right? It's not much of a kingdom, at least the way it's described in Scripture. So we'll talk about that, and then we'll talk about the eternal state. So that's kind of an overview of the main individual topics that we'll devote time to. So that's your introduction to the introduction. Let's spend the rest of our time looking at the importance of this whole area of study. And I'll start off with this whole idea that I referred to earlier that Charlie Clough and I discussed and he emphasized and I told, I assured him that we will deal with this area with the idea or the concept that actually eschatology is something that all of us have innately. Everyone has an eschatology. You, those of you that have taken other courses and we've talked about theology, I've mentioned that everyone has a theology, right? Does anyone remember the cartoon that I used to illustrate that? In other words, everyone has a theology or a concept of God. Remember the Dennis the Menace thing? Yeah, it's a cartoon. I should, I should show it up there, but it's more for theology in general, but Dennis is a menace is looking at an airplane and he says, when I grow up, I want to be like an angel. I want to be an angel so I can fly. That's a theological statement in a cartoon because all of us have innately within us a concept of, of God and angels, a state outside of this realm. In fact, that's an eschatological statement. I need to insert that in the slides there. Uh, so even Dennis the Menace has an eschatology because he's speaking in terms of the future and what he wants to be in the future. So he has a future eschatology. There is a sense in which all of us have an eschatology. And this is extremely important because we deal with a world that rejects God and they don't even know it, but they have an eschatology. They have a theology. If they're atheists... They have a concept of God. They've been deceived into thinking that there is not a God, but they know inwardly. In other words, people know that there is a truth. So the eschatology of all, let's develop this this first point here. And it starts with everyone is created in the image of God. Now, as a result of the fall, the image of God is damaged, distorted, but it's not obliterated. In fact, in James, in his book, 
He's dealing with the unbelieving world, and he refers somewhat in passing that they are created in the image of God. So it's not just believers that are recreated, but all of us are in the image of God. It's in the unbeliever, it's damaged, and it's not partially restored. Salvation partially restores that image, not entirely. That's eschatology, how it all works out. But we're all created in the image of God, so in a sense, we all have a theological perspective. You know, the Bible speaks, you know, Ecclesiastes, all of us have eternity in our hearts. Uh, Romans 1, all of us know that there has to be a God because he's revealed himself to the unbeliever. So we all have a sense, and as a result, we all have a future hope. We all have a sense of what's going to happen in the future. So we all anticipate. And this works itself out in the culture. And you want to be aware of that because eschatology can be a very useful tool in evangelism. And if you understand how other people are thinking in terms of their eschatology, in fact, you want to maybe even evaluate what do they believe in concerning the future because they have a future belief. Even the atheist, he has a future belief. Now, he thinks that we're going to be plant food, but that's a future perspective. He thinks everything ends, and then we break down into molecules and are absorbed by plants. And that comes from the image of God. So all believe in an afterlife of some sort, even the atheist. His materialistic view is that you become plant fertilizer. But everyone believes in an afterlife. Now, obviously, that is totally distorted and totally inaccurate in terms of the unbeliever. It's by revelation that we understand reality and what is true and what the real future is. And that's what this course is all about. So all believe in an afterlife and all yearn. Every single person yearns for a solution to evil. Everyone has that sense within them that things are just not right. The unbelieving world doesn't have an answer. We have an answer. And eschatology gives us that answer. But everyone yearns for justice. And those of you that have had children or have children and grandchildren, you see it. Uh, You give one cupcake to one child and you give uh, two to another, what's going to happen? You'd be making more cupcakes. (laughs) You better have another one ready because you're going to have a battle on your hand because there's this inward sense of right and wrong and justice and injustice and kids let you know when there's not justice. So there's this inward sense and there's this inward yearning for things to work out in a just and equitable way and there's just this inward yearning for a solution to the problem of evil. We're in the midst of it. And the reason I say Genesis 3.15 is a summary of the rest of world history is because world history can be summarized in God bringing evil to its ultimate end. That's world history. And he's done different things throughout world history to take steps in that direction. So all of us yearn for a solution to evil. The unbeliever yearns for the same thing. And then he substitutes, as we always substitute what God has, or for God, we substitute idolatry. The unbelieving world substitutes other things to satisfy this yearning. And we see it even historically. All hope for a better world. 
and all set their life purpose basically to have something better. You know, people that work yearn for retirement <laughs> where I have more time, where I can do more things that I want to do, da 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 we yearn for, you know, we're not satisfied with the world in which we live in, and rightfully so because of the damage of sin and the existence of evil. So everyone hopes for a better world. This is an inward desire that everyone in our culture has. So therefore, everyone needs the solution that eschatology provides for us. And we see examples of this. All history show a desire for a utopia, or a better world, and sometimes it is attempted to be accomplished in political ways, in national ways, and it's vividly illustrated in Babel, where man wants to substitute his own desires for what God has already revealed is going to be what he wants people to pursue, and what God wanted people to do is to spread throughout the world, but they did the very opposite, Let's gather for the very purpose of thwarting the very plan that God has for humanity. So we see manifestations of Babel throughout history or attempts to build something that man can build to build a better world, to build a tower of some sort. And let me just give you some quick examples of these. So we start with everybody has an eschatology, but the French Revolution, people were unsatisfied with the political situation, so they revolt because they have a desire for better things, right? A better world, a better culture, a new republic was the buzzword in those days. All of communism, this is a substitute. It rejects God, but what it's trying to create is a society, a culture, that man builds, that produces a better world, and even sometimes a, a, a utopia. They try to establish in a u- utopian culture. That was the, true of the Soviet Empire, and in some of the statements that you can record historically, you can see that idea, but it's man's idea, and it's not in accord with what God would have. A real vivid example is Nazi Germany. They had an eschatology. They were trying to establish a better culture. The Third Reich, interestingly, a thousand-year period. Where does that come from? It comes out of the book of Revelation, but it's a distortion. It's a counterfeit. And this is one of the quotes that Charlie uses, and I borrowed it. In fact, a mutual friend, Martin Musser, has written a book. Nazi Oaks, where he's done a lot of research on the uh, environmentalism of the Nazi uh, empire during their short reign under Hitler. And in the book he says, Hitler believed that the primitive Christianity was the first Jewish communistic cell. The Nazis, therefore, propounded their own millennium, the thousand-year Reich, was propagated as a counterculture to millenarianism. Is that how you pronounce it? I'm, I'm, I'm an engineer, so I have trouble with words. Hmm? And, and what board is Mark Musser on? Oh, he's on the Chafer board. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, they are counter to what God has revealed. In other words, he's counter-Jewish. And it's from the Jewish eschatology where we get up a millennium. 
And in, we know from the book of Revelation, it's a thousand years. Hitler desired a thousand year Reich. He goes on, this millenarianism directly opposed to the very originators of the millennial apocalyptic worldview of Jews and Christians. It's a counterfeit. It's a new attempt at Babel, a more modern manifestation of it. And there's other things that we comment there. Today, and this hits home, today, Islam, what are they attempting to do? Conquer the world for Allah to establish an Islamic caliphate. They want world dominance. There will not be any peace in their thinking until the world is converted to Islam. So they're not going to enter into any treaty with Israel because there's no peace until Israel comes under domination by Islam. And that's true of Christians as well, the church. They're looking for the return of their Mahdi. This is their eschatology I've got on this slide. It is this messianic personage in their thinking that is to arrive. In fact, this is so antithetical. It's, it's, it's chilling how similar it is to the biblical eschatology, but it's a total distortion of it. And I think it's satanic. They're looking for a Messiah, a coming of a Messiah. In fact, a return of a Mahdi, the 12th Imam is the Mahdi, the Messiah. They're looking for a worldwide caliphate. What's Jesus going to establish when he comes? A worldwide kingdom. So this is the kind of the satanic counterpart. They're looking for a worldwide caliphate where Islam dominates and Islam rules. So it's a false kingdom ruled in their mind by Allah, where Allah is king. Thirdly, everything will be based on Sharia law. In other words, the legal system based on the interpretation of the Quran and other writings, Hadith. So this is world dominance. So Sharia law imposed upon all nations. That's the goal. That's the eschatology. That's the plan. Fourthly, they anticipate, interestingly, a final apocalypse. A final tribulation, if you will. But again, it's a counterfeit. In fact, they don't care that they die because every martyrdom just is one step in bringing about the ultimate apocalypse. Because Mahdi doesn't return until the apocalypse. You see how it's just a total distortion. So this is what we have to deal with in the culture, and we're dealing with this politically today. And unfortunately, most politicians don't have a clue as to what's going on. So the point I'm making here is we all have an eschatology, and that manifests, it comes to the surface and manifests itself in a lot of ways. This is one of the ways it's manifesting itself in our culture today. So these are just examples historically and even today, Islam today, politics today. Let me give you three areas where we see eschatology today, politics today, Globalism today, it's a goal, it's a desire, because some have the inward sense that things would be better if we could just have one world government. We wouldn't have all these nations fighting and disputing and in conflict. 
if we could just organize and everybody have one political system, globalism. And that's a goal, and that's an active goal today. It's a manifestation of that inward yearning, that inward dissatisfaction with evil, that sense that there has to be a better world, but behind it is the idea that man can accomplish it. So all have this yearning, and this is one of the ways that people are trying to satisfy that. If we can only, if only we can organize and become a one-world system, we can eliminate war and have peace. So it manifests itself in globalism, a utopian hope of a one-world government for a new age. You see it in environmentalism. The motive is not a bad one. I mean, we want to have a better environment than what we experience now, but it's unbiblical because it doesn't have a biblical foundation, environmentalism. This is what Al Gore has to say. This is another one of the quotes that Charlie uses. The fate of mankind, as well as of religion, depends upon the emergence of a new faith in the what? Future. That's an eschatological hope. Next sentence. Armed with such a faith, and notice it's a faith system. Armed with such a faith, we might find it possible to re-sanctify the earth. Those are religious terms. This is that yearning that pops up in people's thinking, but since they've rejected God, it is always a counterfeit, it's always faulty, and it's always with man at the center, with man accomplishing it. So environmentalism is a desire to recreate the earth, to re-sanctify it, to cleanse it. It's that inward sense that things are not right. You also see it in a social gospel and this touches with uh, liberal denominations and liberal churches. Again, the motivation is good. We can change society if we change people's environment, a social gospel, if we can provide for the needy, if we can do all these things that help the culture. It's that sense of desiring a better world. And there's nothing wrong with that, except when it gets distorted, then everything that comes out of it is, is useless because man can't accomplish it. Because God is going to accomplish his eschatology that he has revealed, and that's what we're going to deal with. What is the true eschatology, and what is God going to do to accomplish a better world? For us to try to do it is useless. So this social gospel is reflected by Bush when he says we need a restoration of the millennial hope. So he's referring to the Bible here which the Catholic Church dropped out of eschatology, and historically, that's what happened. It adopted an amillennial approach, historically, uh, by the time of Augustine, and it's been that way ever since. And that's the official view of Catholicism today. And much of Reformed theology is amillennial. So we need a restoration of the millennial hope, which the Catholic Church dropped out of eschatology. It was crude in its form. Well, I don't know about that but wholly right in its substance. In other words, there is a millennial hope. And then he goes on, we hope for such an order for humanity as we hope for heaven for ourselves. In other words, we hope for a better world, a better age. And through a social gospel, we can take steps to accomplish it. That's the whole social gospel motivation and idea. So churches, denominations, individuals, 
cultures, politicians, everybody has an eschatology and everybody is basically working towards accomplishing eschatological goals. It's not that people don't have an eschatology and it's not that this is just a side issue that is good for seminars and conferences. This touches us every day and this touches our culture and we come into contact with with it every day just in living out our lives. So this is why it's important. So there's only two alternatives, really. All these substitutes of unbelievers and of the unbelieving world, man's ideas, man's resources to try to better a world for the future or God's plan. And what we're going to look at in this course is God's plan that he has revealed and he's revealed in considerable detail. So eschatology is not a side issue. It's not just for those awful dispensationalists to support their dispensational ideas. It's actually something that everyone yearns and desires. They just don't know where it's coming from, and they just don't know how to work it out. And we have the plan laid out for us so that we can align ourselves with what God is doing. And that's kind of what we want to accomplish in this course. George Mardson says, the dispensational view of history, in other words, our view, our little narrow view, as they would view it, is anti-humanist. Do we agree with that or not? Yes, we do. (laughs) And anti-developmental. Do we agree with that one? Uh, Not really. Because we just see that God has got to develop. Yeah, he's the one that develops. But it's anti-humanistic and anti the way that man would would be developmental. So uh, yes and no is the correct answer. Change takes place almost solely through dramatic divine intervention. And that's the heart of eschatology. Modern historiography assumes that human and natural forces shape the course of history. That's true. In fact, all of the cultures, all of history. These totally opposing views of history lay at the heart of the conflict and misunderstanding between theological liberals and their fundamentalist opponents. And we'll look at that conflict and all these different views. And we believe that our view is the correct view, not because we hold it, but because we attempt to interpret the scriptures accurately and give due study to this whole area of eschatology. A lot of detail to it, but there is a fundamental fundamental difference. So we're in opposition to the broader church, and we'll encounter fellow believers, and I don't necessarily question their salvation, but they will have sometimes a different view than what we have. And you need to be careful in buying books that if you... I'm not saying don't read the books of alternative views, but know what you're reading is what I'm saying. And if you're looking for something that supports the viewpoint, you need to be very careful and selective in in the book that you purchase. In fact, I deliberately have purchased books from opposing views to better understand where they come from and how they come to the conclusions that they do. So we're going to look at... The hope that we have. And by the way, everyone has a hope for the future, that yearning. We all have a future hope, whether it be retirement, and that's it, or it goes beyond this world. 
we have a blessed hope is the way Titus describes it. So we don't set dates, no date setting. Jesus warns us about that. The Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24th, but of that day and hour, no one knows. So if somebody claims to know, they're going contrary to what Jesus revealed. And if that's not enough, not even the angels of heaven. So you're not going to get a revelation from an angel that's saying, hey, the rapture is going to take place certain date, certain time. There are not 88 reasons why the rapture was going to take place in 1988. We're well past 1988. So anyone that does that is going totally contrary to Scripture. And if that's not enough, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, Jesus in his humanity didn't know the omniscient Jesus in his deity, in his humanity, he did not know. That's what he says. But the Father alone. Now, Jesus today in deity probably wouldn't make a statement like that. But in his humanity, he did. So we can't set dates. But I think we have indicators. I think we have a general time frame. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at in uh, some other passages. And this blessed hope in terms of the church is an eminent coming. And we'll distinguish between aspects of the second coming. There's an aspect of the second coming that is imminent that could take place before we finish our study today. And there's also a spectacular, public, visible manifestation of the second coming. That's another phase of it. phase that pertains to these passages in the New Testament is an imminent coming. In other words, it can take place at any moment. For example, Titus 2.13, he encourages Titus and therefore other believers to be looking for the blessed hope. It's a blessed hope for believers and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is a glorious study, glorious endeavor. So that is the eschatology that is present in every believer. hope we emphasize that enough. Let's take a break and we'll come back. About 15 minutes.